Kevin Kelly is one of my new best mentors. He's a senior maverick at Wired Magazine and co-founded Wired in 1993. He served as his executive editor for his first seven years, and he's just a wealth of information. He also co-founded the ongoing Hackers Conference and was involved with the launch of Well, a pioneering online service that was started in 1985. His resume is rich and his new book for Viking Penguin is The Inevitable, which is a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. What I love about him is that he is a wealth of information and he's delivering it. He says Twitter style. I say TikTok style. Regardless, you're going to enjoy this conversation and you're going to thank yourself that you listened. Kevin, welcome. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, my goodness. So am I. I feel as though I'm sitting at the feet of a guru now. Uh, we're going to jump right into it. Certainly, I want to know about your childhood and all that stuff. But you have a new book out called Excellent Advice for Living. Love, love, love it. want to start our conversation by quoting a line from it. In 100 years, a lot of what we take to be true now will be proved to be wrong, maybe even embarrassingly wrong. A good question to ask yourself today is, what might I be wrong about? Now, Kev, this is the only worry worth having, you say. Mm -hmm. That's a very powerful thought. And I'm yeah. sure many people could think of examples of this from the past and, you know, kind of hindsight. But what are some ways that help you to actually consider this each day? So this question, what am I wrong about, is something that's worth asking yourself each day. And um, the stronger your views, the more the stronger you should be asking that question about. It. And that is, is, um, is there might I be wrong about this? What would it look like? Or what might I see in the world if I was wrong about it? And um, what are other, what are some other evidences around me or other, what other people believe that also might suggest that I'm wrong about it. And um, I, I think it's hard. It's so hard to be honest with ourselves many times. And, and because of lots of things that we believe we don't actually get there ourselves we kind of inherit them things mm -hmm. that people around us believe things that our parents believed and so there's there's lots of things that we feel strongly about that we've never actually really ever arrived at by ourselves and this those ones that we want to ask and question why do i believe that maybe i'm wrong about it it kind of lines up in a stronger and likely broader sense with um You'll recall this saying, I'm sure, uh, walk a mile in someone else's shoes, or I think it's a real generous expansion of that ideal, is it not? It is. I think empathy, which is what we're talking about, you're kind of empathetic to other people's beliefs, is, is, is a superpower in many ways. It's actually at the heart of like great design. When you're designing something, you're kind of trying to imagine yourself of a person who's not familiar with what it is that you're doing. And you're trying to put yourself into their mind and say like, well, how would they use it? What would they expect if I, if I showed them this app or this mm. product? 
And so being able to do that, to, to put yourself in someone else's shoes and look at the world, that's incredibly powerful. It's also great if trying to persuade someone rather than trying to tell you what you are wanting to do or want them to do. But you, if you put it in terms of what is good for them, that's em empathy that you're kind of turning around saying, well, this, if you do this, this will be good for you for this reason. That's much more persuasive. So and in a personal in interpersonal relationships, forgive me, in interpersonal relationships, um, that then Kevin, that becomes hugely, I think, important. When we look at it in the broader sense, it applies in every way, because whether we're looking at it from a political sense, many people believe we don't have the diplomacy engaged in politics today that we had historically. Uh, some may say we never really had that much of it. Uh, it depends on how you're looking at it or whether we're looking at it in terms of people's questions about their mortality, their faith or their, you know, I think it just really is a good tool. It, it, it is. It's a fabulous tool. And here's the thing. You can get better at it. Okay. It's, yeah. it's a skill. It's a, yeah. it's a habit. You can practice it. You can improve it. And so um, everybody has some natural level that they start at that are different, but everybody can be a little bit better. And that applies to most love life skills is that we start at different levels, but we can all improve. And when you talk about starting at different levels, it could be fun actually to, to consider how would this sort of thinking, what, what would it look like in practice? Uh, um, an example of how a person uses that one-on-one -on -one could be clearer, but what about in those group settings? What is a good example of how to put this into practice for our family listening? Yeah, I think... Um... I have another bit of advice in the book, which is um, when you're speaking, speak with confidence as if you are correct. But when you listen, assume that you're wrong, right? I mean, so it's like, yeah, you when you say something, you want to say it with confidence, but then you want to have a second part where then you listen to the responses. And at that moment, you should be saying, well, I, maybe I was wrong. And maybe, and this is a way in which I can be corrected. So so I think th that second part of, of a conversation of, of, of dialogue is to be receptive to what's actually being said, to actually listen and not just assume that there's agreement. And, and, and if there is disagreement to ask yourself, well, you know, maybe it's me. So I have another bit of advice in the book, which is like, you know, if you, um, if you are, if, if you you know if you if you meet a jerk every now and then okay that's that's one thing but if you're meeting a jerks all day long all the time you want to look at yourself yes right? yes and so yes, and so yes. that kind of introspection i think is 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 a very important part of working with other people of having empathy in a collective sense and so you you want you do want to pay attention to to what other people are saying and how they respond to you you know, that is so powerful and actually is that uh, previous piece that I took into a meeting with one of my teams and read from the book and then encouraged them to read the whole book. It is powerful advice. And I thank you so much for that. 
Um, you know, on your 68th birthday, you shared a video with uh, 68 bits of unsolicited advice, I think you called it. Uh, our family listening can search YouTube to find it, but it has a lot of great advice in these short and easy to remember pieces. That video was spawned by wanting to gift advice to your children, I think. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I have three children. They're now young adults. And I wanted to put into words some things that we kind of maybe never really told them in words because I, I realized as I was getting older that I really like to have these little, like a proverb, like a little adage, like something that helps me remember it to take all this very large amount of wisdom and reduce it to something that I could repeat to myself and do they could repeat. So my job was to take a lot of wisdom and reduce it to a few things that they could remember and repeat to themselves. And so um, like one of the things I try to tell is, you know, there's, there's no such thing as being um, on time. You're either early or you're late. Oh, I love you. You know, I, when, when Bernie and I were raising our two kids, that was something we said practically every day as we would leave for wherever we were yeah, going. Yeah. If you can't be on time, be early. That was, right. what we, that was right. the way we said it. Yeah. Right. I, I also say that uh, promptness is a sign of respect. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And we see that exercised in theaters where oftentimes uh, people have to close the doors on folks. You know, once the right. show is started, I think that uh, we need to give that same courtesy in life. Right. And so those are the kinds of things that I kind of was putting down into words for my kids. Things yeah. And for, that, you know, for, like um, another bit is um, uh, enthusiasm is worth 25 IQ points. Right. Yeah. It's like you can't really improve your intelligence that much but you can improve your enthusiasm and believe me when we're hiring people i pay much more attention to their enthusiasm and their attitude rather than their smartness because and, and when we're enthusiastic we actually open ourselves up to learn more anyway i think there's a lot to that is there absolutely absolutely so the, the only really skill i think you should have when you graduate from school is the ability to learn learning how to learn because Here's the secret, my friend, is that no matter if you're a digital native right now, you're a millennial, you think you're a digital native, you're not going to be in five years. You're going to be a newbie like the rest of us. <laughs> you're going to have to learn whole new things. Chat GPT, right? You're, you're going to have to learn everything new and you're going to have to be learning the rest of your life. So you oh my goodness! I, I, you, you know, I'm one of your biggest fans. I'm a new fan, and I'm one of the. I'm an enthusiastic. <laughs> fan. Oh, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kevin, do you think making that video helped inspire you to write this book in such a succinct form, rather than kind of drawn out with stories and yeah. examples of each lesson? What, yeah, what was the thinking behind the process of uh, how excellent advice for living came about? Yeah, some people call this the the Bible without stories. So so if you go to the bookstore, lots of advice, and it's usually wrapped into a story. And by far, that's the best way to convey information is with the story, because we're not really built of atoms, we're built of stories. And so if you can tell a story, you can really convey it. But I'm terrible at telling stories. What I'm really good at is writing really pithy little proverbs, little uh, mind grenades, that's what we did at Wired when I was doing Wired. I I write very telegraphically. So I decided to go with my strengths, which is to 
say things in a very succinct, pithy, abbreviated way. And so I, 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 I wrote this and I spent most of my time trying to take words away rather than adding words. And I wanted to reduce things to a sentence. Some people say that you don't really remember books. You remember sentences in books. Mm-hmm. So this is the book of only sentences. All right. Well, you're very much like Shakespeare in that regard, because many yeah. people will on the surface say, oh, wow, those are really big books. They're, big, you know, but truthfully, he was TikTok before it was. <laughs> exactly right. right. So this is really great. This is Twitter. I'm doing Twitter here. And this is the tension span of the younger generation. So I kind of put it in those words. And a lot of the, the, the advice I have is really ancient advice. It's been passed on by the Bible and the Greek Stoics and the Confucian scholars. It's, it's, it's sometimes it's kind of timeless, but I try to put it into my own few words that actually might be memorable for somebody. Well, I love, I, I love, love, love it. And there's so much great advice in your new book. It would be easy to invest this whole conversation quoting from it. But I, there is one more uh, that I want, if you don't mind, to talk about. Because you write, if you can avoid seeking approval of others, your power is limitless. My husband would say that over and over again. <laughs> and it's such beautiful wisdom. Is there any particular memory from your life that comes to mind when you think of that line you know i i worked with um a mentor who was very good at always giving credit and and for the things that he was accomplishing basically it was and and it wasn't it, it was a form of modesty but it went, went beyond it it was very very shrewd because he understood that um not needing the approval of others and to do something um, empowered him to be the only rather than to be the best. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so that, that that ability to 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 be kind of more internally driven versus externally driven it can give you a kind of a, a calmness, a centeredness that will allow you to keep producing work. Because look, you know, anything that, that, that is really good, there's going to be haters on it. That's mm-hmm. almost by definition. Almost mm-hmm. the more powerfully good it is, the more haters there are. So you can't, you can't, you can't let the haters rule you. You have to sort of say, "I'm not looking for approval for others so much." It's it's much more internally driven. And so when I we were doing Wired, when we started Wired magazine, the 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 four or five of us who were starting it, we were making a magazine for ourselves that we wanted to read, and we told the writers. Look, the audience is not your grandmother. The audience is not 11th grader somewhere. It's us. Mm-hmm. It's, you're, you're, you're trying to write to me because this is, we're making this for ourselves. We only make a magazine that we like. And so that sense of, of pleasing and centering ourselves internally rather than, okay, do everybody else like this? No, no, no. It's like, we love it. And if we like it and it's really good, other people will also come to to enjoy it as well so so that internally driven is 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 again people have different levels what they start out but it is a skill that you can get better at oh cheers to that cheers yes. to okay that. well what are you <laughs> drinking what are you drinking it says spindrift sparkling water hey oh spindrift okay they're gonna thank you for that <laughs> <laughs> product placement 
<laughs> my, mine is T, courtesy of my daughter, who I'm so excited, uh, yeah. moved just about a five minute, four or five minute walk away from my home. So it's great to be able to see her before I start a meeting. I, my eldest daughter, who has a young child, our first grandchild, also moved back into our neighborhood. Exactly the same. She was very... She was very cunning because she moved next to grandma and grandpa <laughs> with her with her one year or two year old. So, yeah, um, we, we do, do enjoy that, too. Uh, and we actually walk by her house every morning. So and, and I'm sure it's going to see far more and many uh, opportunities for us to learn more from you, because I'm sure it's seeding some more books for you as well. Oh, yeah. I haven't stopped learning at all and won't stop. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd like to learn a little bit about that magnificent piece behind you. Your backdrop is beautiful. Yes. I um, was in a college dropout, but for the one year that I was in school, I was studying geology. And um, this is a geological map that I found on the Army, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and it's a map a geological map of the Mississippi Valley. And that yet white thing is the current Mississippi River. But these... So, so for people who aren't seeing this and are simply oh, listening to it, let yeah. me just tell you that what I'm looking at behind Kevin is, first of all, it, it appears to be a beautiful collage of a couple of shades of blue with gold and yellow backgrounds right, to it. Right. And then there's a distinctive white curved line that comes right, through right. it gives the effect of uh not so much psychedelic <laughs> as, well, as, as, like modern ancient, art. as maybe ancient at meets modern art right it's kind of like modern art it's like uh, jackson pollock there's lots of squiggly lines and there's lots yes of yes yellows. but but what is it actually kevin what right right so, so yeah so this is a big mural and it's big right behind me and it's a mural, and it's actually a geological map. It's a map of the Mississippi River Valley, and it's showing the old meanders of the river in the valley over millions of years. And so those squiggles are the, the courses of the river, the, the ancient courses of the river. And I had discovered this colorful map as, as PDFs on the, on the Army Corps of Engineers website, and I stitched them together and put them up um as this backdrop and i love maps as art so it's, it's beautiful my son would love it he uh he's a he's a historian no let me correct myself he's a lover of history and he enjoys maps as well so i can hardly wait for him to see it but you yeah. know you talked about uh engineering there are few people in the world who can explain technology the way that you do at least from my perspective and there's a lot going on in the world today that would be great to have your opinion on mm -hmm. before they go there okay before we get there i really know that you have had an optimistic attitude and you even coined the phrase Protopia. Talk with us a little bit in a primer fashion on why it's important to you to be an optimist and um, maybe why it's necessary, perhaps. Yes. Um, so Wired Magazine was started with a very optimistic view of the changes that were coming due to the internet. And um, that helped me become an optimist and see the value of optimism 
both generally, but particularly when thinking about the future. What it is, is if if we realize that most of the really cool and lovely stuff that we enjoy today, from an electric car to smartphone to the microwave oven to antibiotics, whatever it is that you're that, that you think is good, that was generated and created by somebody who believed something that seemed impossible at the time. Um, they had an imagination about it, and they believed that it could be they could be made, that it could be produced. And so in some senses, our lives today have been shaped by the optimists of the past. It's the optimists who actually create the world. And that means that going forward, it's going to be the optimists who make all the cool stuff because this is going to be difficult to make. It's going to be hard to imagine, you know, VR that works or an AI that we'd like. And that is only going to be made by somebody who imagines the future and then believes that it's possible to get there. And that's optimism. That's what optimism is, is the belief that tomorrow will be better than today. The belief that something seeming possibly good, we can actually make. And so, and so it's important to do that because the, all the things that we want, like climate change remedies, are all going to be very, very difficult. And they're not going to happen accidentally. We can't accidentally make a good future. We actually have to imagine it first and then believe that it's possible. And so part of what I'm about and trying to promote with Wired Magazine and others is to help us to imagine a future that has lots of AI, that has genetic engineering, that has all this stuff and that we want to live in. And that is going to help us make it real because we can't do it accidentally. I call that future protopia because it's not utopia, meaning it's perfect. Uh, no, 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 no. It's got a lot of new problems. It's full of problems. But I'm optimistic, not because I don't think there's going to be problems or that our problems aren't as big as they are. I'm optimistic because I believe our ability to solve the problems is even greater. You know, you're just touching my heart. It's as though I'm in church with you right now. I started this conversation. We started this conversation with me feeling I'm at the uh, feet of a guru. Recently, I had the, uh, the honor, the pleasure, and the responsibility to speak at the International Leadership Summit, which uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes puts on annually. And Bishop, as inferred by his title, uh, leads a congregation of faith-based, Christian faith-based uh, 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 people. And there were, oh my goodness, uh, Kevin, there were over 10,000. The, the uh, convention center was sold out. And importantly, digitally, there were many attending. My conversation was to uh, the, um, and, and not to infer that all Christian people or faith-based people don't embrace technology, but it was to share with them an understanding of why they need to understand it better. And said, you're one of those people who can help with that. I almost wish you were in my pocket when I was on that stage talking to it. Uh, you, you may know that my business is built on employment. And over the past few years, many people do express their concerns and worries about what they perceive as kind of a scary future where AI, chat, GPT, and, you know, autonomous vehicles and robots are in some way taking people's jobs. From your optimistic viewpoint, 
What do you say to people who are worried about the impending job losses from new technology and quite in addition, not necessarily separately from that, uh, where they feel it offends their ability to be faithful? You talked about historically how people who created the things we use in everyday yeah, yeah. life today, or, or, or my husband's pacemaker, or the diabetics machine that, you know, and yeah. talk a bit, little bit and help and help with that, because this is real for people. This oh, is yeah. very real to fear. This is, this is a very real concern. And, and I would say that um, in general, um, it's an overstated concern. It's it's very vivid because people, if you've played around with this, you can be very impressed by, oh my gosh, this is very, very powerful. What will happen to people's jobs? Well, here's the thing. I, I, I would, I'm going to go out and limb and say that very, very, very few people will lose their job. However, most people will lose their job description. Mm -hmm. Okay. The things that you do, maybe 90% of the tasks that you do in your job may be done by an automated version, but that remaining 10% are going to be amplified and improved and enabled by the same technology. So you will only be doing maybe 10% of, of the tasks that you did before in a wholly new way. So, so that's what I meant by the job descriptions. Jobs are... Let, let me ask you tasks. something on that. Let me ask you yeah. something on that. As I mentioned just a few minutes yeah. ago, you know, my work is around employment. What about these towns where, and we saw an example of it happen right in front of the uh, drug epidemic that hit the country in the U.S. Our, our family is a global family right. and there have been, you know, iterations of that across sure. different uh, continents. But Kevin, when you have these towns where manufacturing was occurring and then it died, whether it died because of technology or not, technology was a part of the ability to move forward with how we, uh, how we get products to market. What about those people who have those fears of technology taking their jobs? The people who work in the factory yeah, doing yeah, 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 yeah. that robots will now do. Right. I, I think there are a lot of jobs that humans do that they should not be doing. People, okay. Humans should not be picking lettuce. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. that's not that, that that's not a, a job that humans should aspire to. That's not making the best of them. So there are lots of jobs that will disappear that humans should not be doing. I don't think humans should be counting money in a retail store. It's like, that, that's that's not a good use of the great gifts that they were given, okay? And so, so there are some jobs that will go away to automation that should go away, okay? And so um, what we want to do is we want to, you know, here, here's the thing, all the jobs that, that the, the things that, Robots are really good at things that are efficient, efficiency. Any kind of a job that can be described in terms of productivity, that's a job that should go to robots. The kinds of jobs that humans are good at are where it's inefficient. What are inefficient? Well, like art, that's not efficient. You don't count out how many, how many paintings Picasso made per hour. No, no, no. That's art is very inefficient. Um, science is inefficient because you you do experiments that don't work. But you've got you've got this beautiful art behind you, right? 
That's that was that may have been technologically designed. I mean, we got writer strikes going yeah, on yeah. because it can. So, 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 allow me to devil's advocate you a little bit because I'm really enjoying listening to your brain network. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so far, th- th- there's a whole bunch of artists who are concerned about AI art that, that they're going to lose their job. Well, here's the thing. Okay, I'm totally for what I call evidence-based policy. Okay, so let's take the evidence. How many artists have lost their job to AI? The answer is zero. Maybe they could, but so far the evidence is there have been no artists who've lost their job to AI. So then are you saying it's more the fear? No, I won't ask you what you're saying because you're saying what you're saying. (laughs) Are you, may we deduct from what you're saying that the, the, the fear is, more about the unknown than the known. And right. that's why you're championing people understanding it more. Exactly. Am I moving it differently than you're? You're, you're right. No, there, there, there's our, our, our views of robots and AIs is formed by Hollywood and Hollywood. All the pictures we have of what the future could be with AI is all by Hollywood. And those are all dystopian versions of the future because they tell them a story. Okay. You can't, have a future in the uh, in the movie where it works, everything works because it'd be boring. And so our image, our expectations of what AI will be and what it'll do is formed by by stories. And those stories are all worlds that we don't want. But the actual evidence so far is that there has been very, very, even though AI has been around for years, there's been very, very few jobs that have been lost to AI only. Okay. So there may be there may be the idea then, Kevin, that we're talking about jobs for jobs' sake versus jobs for right. what we're jobs looking you want at to do with your life. And and here's what it is: what we see instead when when AI does come is that it changes people's jobs. That's what I was mm-hmm. saying before: your job description it changes mm-hmm. people's jobs, and your job will be changed by AI, but it's going to be changed in a good direction. Okay, and so most people are, if you ask people, will AI change your job? And they say, no, it probably won't change my job, but it probably will change other people's jobs. But everybody says that. So everybody's concerned about other people losing their job. They're not really concerned about you losing your job. Are you concerned about AI losing your, I mean, taking your job away? I don't think so. Right? Me specifically? You specifically. Yeah, and 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 I think actually it's expanded my job. If, exactly. if me specifically, because um, what you can do can't be done because you're it's warm, it's engaging, it's not about efficiency. It's 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 about it's about all these other things that we love, and none of them are efficient, and so the machines aren't going to do it. And that's true for a lot of people. They say, "Well, I, I'm concerned about other people losing the job, but I don't think my job could really be replaced." Yeah. So, so, so then, Kevin, you have, uh, I, and I've been accused over over my career of being a Pollyanna. Okay. So perhaps. No, you're you're, perhaps you're just a kindergarten. The, I'm not, <laughs> so, so perhaps you're the church preaching to the choir here a little bit. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, you do have such a positive spin on both yeah. the mindset of tech versus human. and the practicality of people needing to have jobs. My husband, my husband, Bernie, uh, would tell a story and Bernie um, transcended um, in uh, 2019. 
of uh, Alzheimer's. Right. We were blessed to have him here at home with us. And uh, prior to that, he would tell a story for years about growing up in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a Yorkshire lad. And um, he would have summers where he would deliver milk on a buggy where the uh, horse knew exactly where to stop, how long to wait, the chats would go on. And it amazed him as a kid that you never had to tell the horse where to go next and when to stop. But he said what, what blew his mind more was when his, he was sharing that with his mom and his mom told him, well, you know, when she was a girl in Lancashire, uh, England, she um, they they delivered ice by buggy, sure, not milk, but ice by buggy. Right. And she said they that the thing that got her was that the ice man was the best ice man you could have in the community, right? And chip off a piece for the kids when it's hot, that kind of thing, and everybody loved him. And he felt so undone when his customers stopped buying from him. But he really thought he was in the ice business. The truth of it was that he was in the refrigeration business and he didn't allow the technology of his wheels to catch up with refrigerators. And so he lost his business, but he did enable himself to have a different job. And I think that's very much what you're talking about. Some of us are going to keep selling ice, not knowing we're in the business of refrigeration. That's what I call your job description. You'll lose your job. And and, and you wrote one article last year about AI art. We were talking about that earlier called Picture Limitless Creativity at Your Fingertips. Am I right? right? Exactly. So in that artificial creativity now, yes. Yeah, and you say AI can now make art better than humans. There's also the recent Writers Guild strike we talked about uh, just a few minutes ago and concerns about AI taking writing and design jobs. So let's talk about two more questions on this. One, if you were going to start Wired today, would you consider using AI for journalism and photography? Absolutely, 100%. So what these new AIs like to chat GBT that we're talking about, what they are, are basically they're universal free interns. Everybody can now have an intern. And you have the intern help you write an article, make a picture, do a design, do a summary PowerPoint, but they're interns. So you, you have to check their work. You have wow. to make it better. You can't just release the intern work. It's kind of embarrassing, but you're going to work with them as an intern, as an assistant, as a teammate. And that is how it's going to make your job different and easier and better. So they aren't going to replace you because they're not, they're not that, they're not human. But together, the human plus the AI is more powerful than either the AI by itself or the human by itself. So this is this team stance. And so that's the framework that we're going into the AI is they like are like a surgeon in a in an operating theater. There right. are lots of instruments and technologies in there that help him assure that patients don't right. wake up help. So the, the instruments alone can't do it. This the surgeon alone can't do it, but the surgeon plus the AI and the robot, that is the best team. That's and by the way, that's the best team in diagnosis. If you're going to get a diagnosis, you want to have 
a doctor who's using AI to help. The AI alone can't do it as good. The doctor can't do it as good. The team. So that's the team. So everybody now has the personal intern that you can you can use to help you do stuff. And so that is the new relationship that we're going to be having everywhere. And, and I, I think you're true about it being everywhere. I referenced earlier uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes, who I think is a phenomenal leader uh, and very much needed for our time today. He's a smart businessman. And so he's able to bring his basic ideologies and faith-based uh, knowledge into the real world in ways people need it. And he, he was talking about how during COVID, many uh faith leaders felt that they needed people in churches and they didn't understand the technology of the internet enabled them to have stronger delivered messages. And so um, when, when, when we talk in those senses, you and I are both nodding our heads that technology is an enabler to positive outcomes sure. and, 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 and people plus tech can give us a better human experience. There are people who don't view AI art as real art. Mm. Um, the idea of what's real to one person and real to another person has always been, I think, a subject for coffee, sure, right? Sure, sure. Well, uh, 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 but where are you on that? For, to yeah, everybody's yeah. not going to get on the boat, but where are you on helping, <laughs> well, you know, helping I, more of them get to shore? <laughs> what, another another way to help your optimism is to spend a lot of time reading history and going into the past. Because I, uh, I, if you research what happened when the painters of the 1800s first encountered photography, they all thought that photography, that's not art, that's cheating, okay? And then we're all going to lose our jobs. Because the painters would try to paint real things. And now here is this thing that said, all you have to do is click the little button and then you have uh, an image and it's not real art and it's going to destroy painting. Well, it didn't destroy painting. It actually changed painting, made it better. We had modernism and impressionists. And secondly, photography turns out not to be so easy. It's not just a matter of clicking. You actually need some, there's an art to it. It can become an art. And that's the same thing now when the AIs come the, the photographers and artists, oh, no, no, you just have to click buttons, and you make art, and you make stuff that is not art. No, no, it is art, because it's not just a matter of cooking. I spend hours and hours in conversation with the AI to make each picture, which I do, I post one a day. And so it, it, it's a conversation. It's, it's, it's a teamwork. You can't just put up the first thing it makes. You have to work it, nudge it, Say, oh, not quite that. You're almost there. Can you do better? This is not really what I was thinking of. And so it's art. It's creative. But um, it's the best stuff is produced by those who can work with this AIs. And it's going to be just like photography was, uh, its own new thing. So it actually is art. And it requires a lot of work to make it good. Well, you know... First of all, Kevin, it, this is just so stimulating to me. And I, I, I keep coming back to where you talked in that 68 bits of advice mm -hmm. about uh, enthusiasm is worth 25 <laughs> IQ points. So, you know, helping people get there, you can raise your IQ just by right. being excited. <laughs> A lot of people do think more about the immediate and don't take stock in long uh, bets or long-term thinking. 
what are some examples of recent or past long bets you've taken and why did you take them in line with your sure. uh, philosophy on enthusiasm being a big part, I would think, of how you decision make right. things? I, I think long term thinking. Is that a good question for you? It, it is a great question. Does that expose you too much? I, I think I think um, thinking in the long term is is a, is a vital and necessary skill today um, because um, it can help you be optimistic if you take the longer view. It's like it's like investments. If you're invested for the long term, even though if you have a small incremental increase, but that's compounded over time, and that longer view allows you to overcome even fairly severe downturns. Right. Mm. If you're there for the long view, then you can realize that those are just temporary setbacks. And so that long view is so important that I'm a co-chair of a foundation called the Long Now Foundation, which is encouraging ways in which we can take a longer view for things. And that may be generational views. Say, okay, maybe we're working on something that may not be done in our own lifetimes that has to be completed by future generations that will benefit the future generations the most. Not just me now, but those and those yet unborn. We can so make- so planting planting trees that we may not get the shade from in our lifetime. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. And so that's an example of how to be a good ancestor. And mm-hmm. so part of that process, we've been thinking about ways. And one of the ways I encourage long term thinking is to make bets because people like to make a bet, and I think it will help us refine what works when we think about the future. So we've made different kinds of bets. There's a bet about whether um, uh, the population of the planet is going to be smaller in 50 years than it is today. And that's one of the bets I've been making is that our our global population, world population is going to start to decrease very, very fast. It's not overpopulation. That's not, that's not a problem. It's the opposite problem. We're going to have depopulation as, as a problem in the future. And that's a bet that I've, a long bet that won't be settled during my lifetime. It'll go beyond. Okay. And so, um, well, we're seeing some evidence of that in Europe right now, aren't we? Where women are opting not to have children and governments are looking at it or in Japan, Japan, Korea, communities of very, yeah, and Korea. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And and so Japan right now is losing, not, not, everybody all countries have dropped the fertility rate some of them below replacement level meaning that they can't replace so they're losing population and japan already has losing population every year so there's fewer and fewer and fewer japanese and the problem is that we don't see any solution to that even when they offer people money to have babies it doesn't work maybe they're not offering enough maybe you have to offer a million dollars and pay for it we Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this in lines with solving or that being a problem. Right. Are we are we dynamically set on the idea that that is a problem? If we take the when you're talking about taking long view right. and taking bets, is it is it is it dynamic? Is it is it finite to say that is a problem? Can we survive as humanity with fewer humans? Or are you suggesting the decline of 
humans being born will continue to the point that there are none left and that yeah. in and of itself is a right. problem is the universe better with humans than without it or <laughs> <laughs> no. well, are humans simply me <laughs> I, I mean i know i'm taking you there but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, i think you're a person who can show us there that's exactly right and this this question of what is our role both as individuals and as a species and particularly when we have AI and all these other things, it's like, what are we going to do? Why are we here? What's a human for? What's a better human? How do we, how do we become, what does that even look like? These are That's questions. That's what I'm asking you. That's these, what I'm asking you. These are questions that we were, have always been interests of philosophers, but now we don't have a choice. We actually have to have an answer. We actually, we actually have to collectively have some consensus because you know we have these AIs and these AIs can do things and some of them times the AIs are maybe they're racist or maybe they're sexist maybe they're mean yeah that's because they were trained on humans but we don't accept that we say no no they have to be better than us okay well what does that mean what what does that look like what does better than us look like and and Philosophers have maybe talked about that, but now we actually have to have an answer. We can't just say it's philosophy. We have to give them an answer. Say, here's the code, here's the behavior that we want that would be better than humans today. And that is the same thing. But doesn't that scare those people who say technology versus human is a bad bet? Right. It's, 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 it's great because what the, the AIs and the technology is allowing us to do is to become better humans because it's like our children. We want our children to be better than us, okay? And so these are our mind children. We've made these things, and we want them better than we are. We want them to behave even better than we do. But Define better. Define that's better. That's the question. That's the thing. We don't have that. We don't have a, an agreement or even an idea or a picture of what that means. Is it being woke? Is it being post-woke? Is it being super woke? What does that even mean? So we don't know, but that's the challenge that we're going to have is we're going to have this conversation again and again and again for the next hundred years of what do we want to become? What do we look, what's a good goal for the things that we're making for these AIs and others? And because we have fewer humans, why are we here? If we have fewer and fewer on the planet, what are we here for? If we have robots doing all the work for us, what do we get to do all day? What do we want? And so, again, for the first time in history, we now have to answer that question. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. And the thing is, uh, the people who are in positions to answer that and the people who, the humans who perform to our greater society on how to answer that, may not be as equipped to answer that because many of them, maybe most of them, don't have a basic understanding of the technology we are putting the question forward from. Right. And and a lot of people have had trouble believing that the technology will force us to, to make these questions, that, that this is their, or that the human nature can change too. That's another thing. What we're seeing is that civilizational level, the education, how we educate people, what we expect, things like fairness and stuff. These are things that we can teach and we can transmit over generations. They call it the grandmother effect, 
where the grandmothers transmit this information about values. We can shape those. Those are things that we can change so we can expect the people of the future to behave better than we have behaved. Let me say up front that I respect uh, technology and embrace it as an enabler toward a better life experience for humans, as well as I think it can be used in a way to help us be better caretakers of the earth, the environment, and the universe. Uh, Recently, I heard a discussion that, um, and it's a little, I say it a little with a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say shame because, you know, shame is not a healthy place to be. Uh, Kevin, I heard a discussion that I shied a bit away from uh, where one of the speakers was uh, putting forward that as humans, we're not as good as we think we are or as we sell that we are. And that somewhere along the timeline, we created civilization to enable individuals to build forward and then communities to build forward. But at core, we are not good. We, 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 don't, we don't really have innately that belief that allows us to think we can't take what belongs to someone else or kill someone for the sport of it. Now, I don't know that in the animal kingdom, animals actually kill for sport so much as they kill from a fear of, you know, personal endangerment. But where are you on that idea of, is there an innate goodness in people? Yeah, when we yeah. were growing up, mama and daddy told us that people are good and without that goodness, we wouldn't continue to survive. Sure, sure. Yeah. You're talking about a demise in the number of the population of humans, right, right, right. not so much from whether we're good, but from no. whether we choose to, you know, <laughs> yeah, go, go with me on it. Yeah, no, I, I'm 100% with, with your parents. In fact, there's a great book called Humankind, which makes the argument that we were taught wrong in school, that the basic default behavior of humans is to be selfless and helpful, that all things being equal, even in a crisis when survival is paramount, people will want and want to be helpful to others. And I believe in my own experience traveling around the world with people who have almost no money and people who have a lot of money and everything in between is that people want to and are generally kind if you give them and expect that from them. And that the basic foundation of the universe is this paradox. And the paradox is that the most selfish thing you can do is to be generous. Okay, that's a bit of advice. The most selfish thing you can do is to be generous because the more you give, the more you get. And mathematically, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. If everybody in the world's giving and they're getting, where does it come from? But that is the paradox at the foundation of the universe, which is that the more you give, the more you get. And the most selfish thing you can do is to be generous. Okay, so that's, in my experience, how the world runs. Wow. Wow. You know, your grandchildren are so blessed to have you. (laughs) I'm skipping right by the children. I do want to go backwards a little. You talked about if you want to understand the future uh, uh, study history, um, I paraphrase you a bit there. Uh, We talked about photography and how it made better, how it inspired better uh, artists. Um, 
one of the things I'm in love with of the many about your work and your career is your book, Vanishing Asia. The imagery in that book is just beautiful. I want you to talk about that project. And when you do, can you just open up for us a little bit about your youth? Because you lived in a small uh, small Asian town, right, with no technology at all. How do you how do you think the juxtaposition helps shape your perspectives? I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. So so um, uh, as I said, I, I, I dropped out of college after one year and I went to Asia and I was interested in, in photography and I had no I had no idea what this was. This is 1971, 72. And it was a very, very different place. It was basically what I call like a time machine. I was literally able to go back in time and live in places like Afghanistan or the Himalaya villages where they had not changed in hundreds and hundreds of years. They were living like in 1500. And that experience of living in a place where there was very little technology gave mm -hmm. me a huge appreciation for what it is that we have. So while it was incredible to visit, in many cases, the, the villages were beautiful, but you, you didn't really want to live there. You didn't want to grow up there because... Um, first of all, they looked beautiful, but they didn't have plumbing. They didn't have running water. They didn't have air conditioning. They were cold and drafty and smoky. There was no, <laughs> there was no Wi-Fi, right? And that's what everybody wants, okay? And so, um, and and most importantly, they didn't have any choices. Growing up in a village in those days, in the medieval times, you didn't have a choice of what you were going to do with your life. You were going to be a farmer. Or a blacksmith. It was, and if you were a woman, you had only one choice. You're going to be the wife or the mother. And there was no... Procreate. Procreate. Procreate, right. And there was no... If you, I mean, there were probably some of the best mathematicians who ever lived, but they didn't have access to, to math or the, or the option to do that. And so, and so the, they move into the city away from those villages. I saw that firsthand. That's what I witnessed. Hundreds of millions of people leaving these beautiful villages where they were eating organic food and having beautiful architecture. And they knew who they were. They had strong families and strong communities. They took a one-way bus ticket into a grimy, gritty city and lived in a, a grimy part of the, of, the, of the place because they had the possibility of more choices of what they wanted to do. They could become a web designer. They could become a ballerina. They could become a teacher, a mathematician physicists those were all possible and so that's what i saw in my own life and i was documenting with photography the the the, the world that they were leaving behind that which was beautiful in many ways and and had a certain dignity and a quality that i thought should be recorded because it was going to go away and i spent 50 years five zero 50 years traveling in Asia between Turkey and Japan and Siberia and Indonesia, documenting all these very rich cultures and ceremonies and habits that were going that were disappearing as everybody moved into the city. Because if I was living there, I would move into the city. Mm -hmm, I don't blame mm -hmm, you. No, mm -hmm. I don't, there's no nostalgia. I'm not trying to stop that from happening. I just mm -hmm. wanted to record it because it's going to go away. And I embrace the fact that they're moving into city and they're making brand new cities that are more futuristic than our cities, which we've stopped building. So I learned from them a, a sense of optimism because they they truly have seen 
their own lives transformed within their lifetime, and they believe that they can still keep making it better. And so I also believe that tomorrow is going to be better than today. Yes, I get one hundred percent. I'm with you uh, there. And here, he, here, here are two questions that arise for me from what you've just shared. One is um, perhaps some of the failures of our cities, which many people experienced during COVID. Um, perhaps some of the failures of our cities will be solved through technology, not through leaving the cities. I think right. people exactly. legitimately left the cities because the technology and the solutions weren't there to allow us to sure. do that. Uh, and I'd love your thoughts on how we how we evolve that. And another question that arrives for me, because I want all the juice from you I can get, Kevin, uh, is uh, how long is long enough when we talk about human age? Oh, uh, you get what I'm saying? Many of the people, historically, we're told, uh, some lived hundreds of years, then some lived 30 years. And then there was a time in this country where I believe 50 years was pretty old. <laughs> so how old is old enough for one human? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the... And, and I say that with some, I say that with some gist toward the idea <laughs> of okay, well, if technology helped you get past 50, is it now a good thing versus... Right, 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 right. So, so um, one of the biggest advances or advantages of technology that we have undoubtedly evidence for is that we've had this increased longevity. And, and what it was is the average age of um, the past might have been only 30 or 40 years, but that was an average. And that was based on the fact that there was a really high child mortality, which is really, really terrible. But if you could live to be like 30, then you might live to be really old. It was just that the children, so many children died at a young age that that brought the average down. So it was kind of like, yeah, if you could, if you made it to 35, you had a good chance to make it to 60. So there were a lot of old people who survived that huge die-off among, among children. And it was just horrible, the number, uh, high fatality rate of, of children. And that's mostly what we've cured. And that's why the average age has continued to, to, to increase. But the longest age, we haven't really changed that much. What we've done is this sort of allow more people to lit, to reach it. So okay. is that in the 80s or 90s or, or will we with technology change that now to uh, 200? So, 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 so far. How we old have, was Methuselah? How old was Methuselah? I don't know. We, <laughs> we, we, we have, we, so far the evidence in modern times is that the, the longest that you can live does not change very much. What happens is, is that more people make it to the to limit. So there will be more and more people who make it to 100, but there's not going to be a lot, not people going to 120 for a very, very long time. Okay, so so uh, is that um, because the, the the composition of materials of the body aren't today where they function really that long? Right, exactly. It's we have evolved. There was no reason to to have long lived. A lot, a lot of them, um, you know, all the reasons genetically were were done in young adult, and so. The, there's these cells wear down over time. It's not that we can't figure out this. I think over history and in the future, we'll have a little bit by a little bit, but it's there's trade-offs. There's always going to be trade-offs. 
and so the problem is is you know maybe you can live a few years longer but you'll um you know i don't know, not be able to walk or that you're you have to you have to have mechanical support of some sort are you willing to do that is 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 it and so we don't know what those trade-offs are but we do know that biologically there's going to be a cost to doing that over time to to really extend make it really long like a 220 maybe 150 but i think people should not expect to see that within their lifetimes today it's not the average you have a higher chance to live to be 100 and that is something that people can expect to do if they take care of themselves and they're lucky with their genes but you shouldn't expect to live to 120 that's even if you're young today so so that's the evidence so far that could change maybe someone will discover something in the next year that would change everything but right now that's the general pattern yeah and i think they're looking at some of that with stem cell to see not only how do we cure or how do we reproduce or regenerate but also strengthen and lengthen uh the the um right quality and, and the of, quality of, of that old age is also improving too so again you could expect to live to be 100 and that 100 could be very very high quality but you should not expect that you're going to go to 120. before we go to four for four um, there is one thing that is I'm burning to ask you, <laughs> not knowing if it is necessarily your area of expertise. Uh -huh. However, I really will value your perspective from okay. learned experience. Right. We are talking a lot about tech. We're talking about how mm -hmm. we improve the experience of humans sure. and the humanity of that sure. on the humanity side of that. Throughout history, access has been the issue or the divider or the lack of, yeah. you know, equal or whatever. As we look at the advance of technology in how we live on planet Earth, mm -hmm. how do we address access to that right. tech? The person who does have the ability to have a better enjoyable experience in 100 years is going to gain that from their ability to have access to that technology. Mm -hmm. What about those populations who don't have access? Is there a humanity aspect of how we factor the advantage of technology from your perspective? Yeah. Is that a fair question to you? I, I, yeah, we had some experience in the internet and cell phones earlier when there was a great concern about what they called the digital divide. Yes. And what it turns out, that there really isn't a digital divide. It there wasn't like the have and have nots. There was the haves and the have laters. Okay, because what 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 happens is that the rich get the technology first when it's not very good and overpriced, and their adoption of it helps drive down the cost until it's cheap enough for everybody to to afford. So in some senses, the rich subsidize the development of the technology so everybody can get it later. And so right now, in the beginning, cell phones were just the rich person's toy. They seemed crazy. Who would want one? All that kind of stuff. But now, of course, I've seen the street sweepers in India, some of the poorest people in the world, take out their, their mobile phone. They, it's cheap enough everywhere in the world that every, just about every adult human on the planet can afford to have 
a phone, a cell phone. Um, and most women-owned businesses in Africa are, are, are driven by cell phones. Exactly, exactly. And that is something that didn't seem likely or possible at the time when the cell phones came out. But what happened was the rich bought them. They were way overpriced. They didn't work very well. And that, that propelled the process to bring the cost down. And the same thing with AI and other things is that, yeah, in, initially the rich will have access to it. They won't be very good. They'll be overpriced. They'll pay more, but that paying more actually will help develop it until the point where it's affordable by everybody to have laters. So this have and have laters. And sometimes, and that, that gap between the haves and the have laters is shrinking and shrinking faster and faster. So this, it, it can be just a few years between when something is overpriced and not working very well and when it's almost free to everybody and works very well. Oh, Kevin, I'm so grateful for this conversation. Is there anything that um, that you want to share that I've really not covered here? Well, I have I have this this book, Excellent Advice for living, which is 450 little kind of proverbs. And uh, one of the things I've noticed from people is people who have kids, it's kind of aimed at young adults and who are graduating or going on to uh, people who have kids like that. They say, look, my, my kids don't listen to anything I say. They don't take advice from me, but if I can hand them this book <laughs> and you say it, they'll listen. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's what really is what it's really good for in many ways is if, if you have kids that don't listen to you, they might listen to a book. And um, I, I recommend it for, for those kind of uses. As do I. And we will certainly make sure that it's included at the finish of this uh, conversation in the podcast. Um, you know, the next time we talk, I pray we'll be face to face and technology has allowed us, I think, to have an intimate conversation here that will uh, generate and inspire thought for so many people. Uh, so that in of itself, I think, is a great example of what you're sharing with the world. Um, and I'm assuming we'll have another conversation. I pray I'm welcome to that with you. Uh, let's go four for four, shall we? Sure thing. So I'm going to ask you four questions to which you'll give me four answers. And it is absolutely, there is absolutely no right or wrong, especially with you. Oh my goodness. Uh, the first question is you get to invite four people to dinner from any point past in history to present. We're not talking about those futuristic <laughs> uh, folk who we've not identified the human of. Who's yeah. at dinner and uh, who's at your table and why? For people from the past, um, I'd like to have uh, Jesus, uh, Gandhi, Abraham Lincoln, and Albert Einstein. Why? I think they'd have a lot to say to each other. And I would just listen. Awesome. Awesome. That would be amazing to see you there because I depend on you so much to be the talker. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what four pieces of music are you listening to today and why? Well, I haven't listened to much music recently, but when I write, mm -hmm. I play one song on a loop around and around and around and around and around. And that helps me kind of focus in some ways. And it's a Gregorian chant 
that's sung by um, the Belgian men's choir, and it's called the um, Hymn of the Seraphim. There's no words. It's just this kind of Gregorian melody, just chanting vocals. And for some reason, it just it just puts me into writing mode. And I play the same song over and over and over again. Oh, I think that's so cool. And there have been times in uh, my life where I've really wanted that one song over, <laughs> and over and over. Maybe not to write so much as to be quiet and get myself together. Um, what four books do you recommend mm -hmm. to our family and why? There's one Beyond your own, which we of are recommending. Of course. Um, there's one book called um, Finite and Infinite games by james cars who was a pastor who um said there's two kinds of games in the world there's finite games where there's winners and losers and you have to play by the rules and it's unfair to kind of break the rules and then there's infinite games and infinite games there are no winners and losers everybody's a winner who plays and the purpose of the game is not to win or lose but to keep the game going and bring as many people into the game as possible and he says, basically, all the great things in life are infinite games. And so whenever I'm headed, I ask myself, is this a finite game or an infinite game? Because I want to play the infinite games. That's one book. Um, I recommend a book by a, a friend of mine called How Buildings Learn, which is about you're making a space. You want to make you want to understand that all the great spaces learn over time. They change over time. A building is kind of like a prediction. Even a home, you're predicting what you're going to use in it. And usually it winds up, you, you do different things. That's why you remodel over time. That's why you change things. So the building is learning. And you kind of want to expect that in the beginning, that you're going to make something. So you want to make things as changeable as possible because your use of that space is going to change over time. So it's a very practical book in that way. I would say another book that um, I like is something called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And it's really about how to form good habits in a very practical sense and how not to form bad habits. And it's the best manual on habit formation there is, atomic habits. And the last one, um, I would say the Bible. And the Bible is the most overrated book and the most underrated book. And it, no matter what you think it says, it doesn't say that. So you should read it yourself all the way through because it doesn't say what you think it says. Oh, my goodness. You know what my weekend will be, right? <laughs> Filled with these recommendations you've made, perchance with the Gregorian chat behind me. <laughs> and we laugh, and I'm serious about that. Uh, so uh, before we hug off, uh, what are the four pieces of advice? And you've given so much and yeah, so yeah. rich. It, are there four more pieces of advice <laughs> in the spirit of going four for four that you yeah. offer our family right now? And if it's advice that was shared you from someone else, please sure. show homage to the author. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say one thing is um, don't don't ever work for someone that you, that you don't want to become. Okay. <laughs> Love that. Secondly, um, reading to your children regularly is the best school that they will ever get. Okay. Um, how about this? Um, a thing that made you weird as a kid can make you great as an adult if you don't lose it. 
And is that three? And the last one maybe is um, uh, anything you say before the word but does not count. Love it, love it, love it. My daughter would say, mommy, when you say but, that means everything you just said isn't true anymore. <laughs> oh my goodness. Can't, Kevin, 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 I don't want the conversation to finish. It's, it's just been such a treasure, such a yeah. treasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. You, you are looking at someone whose life has been impacted. I, uh, on September 1, I'll be 70 years of age. Wow. You have taught me today as a child. I feel like a child learning new and afresh. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I'm, I'm really grateful for the attention you've given, for your spirit, and for the way in which you have received these um, little bits of wisdom. Thank you so much for giving me time to share it with others. I appreciate it. From my heart to your home. Thank, thank you. you.